0: So I, uh, I've been asked by the United Nations to do two papers. Uh, there's a big concern in the trading system about the extent to which, especially for developing countries, um, uh, the trade regime is making it more difficult to deploy some of the uh, measures that uh, different countries are thinking about to try to prevent, uh, you know, deal with the current crisis and prevent, prevent future crises. And so I was asked to do two papers, um, one that's finished that you have out there. I finished it this, this spring. Um, and this one looks at the extent to which capital controls are illegal under uh, different trade and investment regimes. And the one that I'm working on now uh, looks at sovereign debt restructuring, which uh, make me is part of the reason why I've read so much of uh, Timothy's work, um, and looks at the extent to which it's actually fascinating that sovereign debt restructuring is illegal under most of the bilateral investment treaties, at least signed by the United States and, and European countries. Um, but um, I wouldn't dare present the sovereign debt restructuring one. Uh, let me talk about, uh, about, about capital control. I've got four more main points. Uh, um, in, in the economics profession, there's a renewed consensus on capital controls as a legitimate part of the policy toolkit. It's not your grandfather's or your father's capital controls. These are things that are much more... Uh, much more modest, but uh, there is a, a, a widespread across the political uh, and theoretical spectrum from the economics profession on the legitimacy of these. They're not a panacea, but they should be part of the toolkit. And the trade and investment treaties pose a significant barrier to the effective use of these. Um, so we've got, we've got a problem. Um, there's numerous examples, uh, but I think that the, the problem can be fixed. There's numerous examples of ample policy and other treaties that, uh, that uh, we could mimic. Um, and reforming treaties for financial stability is in the United States' interests is a major debate right now with the South Korea Trade Agreement and the Columbia Trade Agreement that uh, are, um, are uh, uh, sitting in the, in the U.S. Congress. So first, let me just talk about the, the new consensus on, on capital controls. Um, it's, uh, most of the work's been done by the National Bureau of Economic Research uh, here, in, here in Cambridge. It's definitely where the most prestigious mainstream economists in the United States Get commissioned to do uh, their work. Eswar uh, Prasad, which I spelled his name wrong here. If you China folks might know him. He was the uh, I, you know the IMF bureau chief of the, of China for a long time. So this is this is not uh, 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 left wing economics by any stretch of the imagination. And if you look at the econometric evidence, all the evidence out there shows that capital account liberalization is not correlated with the, with economic growth in developing countries. This is the Consensus in the in the profession, it is correlated with economic growth in developed countries. Uh, developed countries that want to you know get involved in this stuff uh, are gonna are gonna be shot in a few, a foot. Um, the foot. It's only effective above a certain threshold. And now there's a big debate in the profession. There's a, a, a consensus that capital market liberalization isn't good for growth in developing countries. But what's the threshold? You know, <clears throat> should Colombia be full, be fully open? Should China be fr- freely open? Should Paraguay? Is it? Should you? And there's all sorts of regressions on uh, GDP per capita and capital market liberalization. Um, <clears throat> but according to the research at the moment, and you can, the, the most um, uh, the most significant uh, review of the literature on the on the threshold is, is this article right here. So oh, just about every emerging market uh, falls below the threshold. Uh, what are some of the fears of capital market liberalization? Again, for developing countries. This is uh, for developing countries. There's uh, at least six of them that, uh, that uh, Carmen Reinhart and others have, uh, have identified, and they're not, they're not uh, uh, they're, a lot of them are, are somewhat redundant and flow into each other. There's a fear of hot money flying in and out of your country too quickly. Uh, it can cause asset bubbles. Uh, sometimes your financial system can't handle the large, the large inflows. One of the big concerns that's happening right now across the world, which is the reason why about 12 countries have deployed capital controls in the past eight months, is that you're going to get uh, exchange rate appreciation from the massive flows. And if you uh, have an open capital account, especially with things like the carry trade, you don't necessarily have an independency in monetary policy, because if you lower or raise interest rates, that could uh, have the reverse effect that you would want uh, on, uh, on capital, and sometimes you can get capital flight. So from those fears comes the economic rationale for capital controls in developing countries below the threshold Uh, they can insulate your economy from procyclical foreign borrowing Um, they throw a wedge in there so that you can raise and lower the interest rate to deal with things on the domestic level they can reduce pressure on the exchange rate and provide policy space for for countercyclical uh... macro policy and deal with uh, asset bubbles this is a list of of, uh, of the kinds of capital controls that most economists are talking about now, this is not the stuff that uh, that um, you know, Harry Dexter White and, 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 uh, and Keynes were talking about uh, 75 years ago. Uh, ma- major currency restrictions. These are more often than not temporary capital controls um, that economists tend to favor those that are market based. Uh, you know, the, the most uh, the most famous one where most of the economic evidence is supportive uh, of uh, is, uh, is supported the something called the unremunerated reserve requirement. Uh, Thailand uses it in 2007, as does uh, Colombia, Chile is probably the most famous country that uses it. And it basically, uh, is, it's a combination of a, of a minimum stay requirement, which I have here, and, uh, and a tax. Uh, if you're going to have uh, short-term debt uh, flying into a country, uh, a certain percentage of it has to be parked in the central bank for us for six months, four months, or a year, um, so that if there is an event in the country or if there is a fear of contagion, with that, that money, not all of the money, can can fly out of the country. Um, uh, Brazil's tax from November of 2009, they had a one percent tax on all short-term debt. Uh, they've now increased it to two percent and, and done some other things around it. Th- those are examples of. Uh, Temporary capital controls on inflows. There's examples of uh, temporary capital controls on outflows, which are taxes on outflows, exchange controls, uh, mandatory approvals. You have to be approved by a a board. Uh, The econometric evidence holds a little bit more weight towards the market-based ones like taxes and uh, minimum state requirements rather than uh, outright uh, 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 prohibition on, on certain kinds of inflows and outflows. The first comprehensive um, review of the econometric literature was done by Reinhardt for the National Bureau of Economic Research that looked at everything before the crisis. Right? So this is really all the stuff that happened in the 1990s up until the turn of the century. And uh, <clears throat> there, she says in, 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 the, um, in the conclusion of this massive literature review, in some capital controls on inflows make monetary policy more independent, alter the composition of capital flows, and reduce real exchange rate pressures. The capital controls on outflows, the econometric evidence is a little shaker. They seem to have worked in, in Malaysia. Just about every study that has an econometric approach to Malaysia showed that they work, but other countries, uh, the outflows, there's not as much of a consensus. This is just a um, <clears throat> this is just a snapshot of some of the key countries that deploy controls and the extent to which <clears throat> the econometric evidence backs up uh, If <clears throat> for one of these different fears that I talked about. Uh, if there's a significant, statistically significant and positive or negative effect um, uh, during the Great Recession, all, all these fears came to roost uh, right before the recession. Obviously, there was a you know the, the thing is in part a function of these great uh, global imbalances where there was massive amounts of capital moving around the country to world too much. Um, if you look at uh, this is the change in the net financial account taking FDI out. Uh, in, in various countries from 2007 to 2000, from 2002 to 2007, changes in percent of GDP. So this is not just percent changes, it's percent changes in percent of GDP. I know we've got some of our suspects that we read about in the paper all the time, Argentina, Greece, Spain, and so forth. Massive inflows in, uh, in, in finance and capital, and correspondingly in many of the countries, Argentina, we can talk about, they've been off a cliff for a long time. Many of the countries get a really significant exchange rate appreciation. Uh, and then after the, when the crisis hits, you, uh, you get major devaluations in a lot of the countries because of an incredible amount of, uh, of capital flight. Uh, a number of countries have um, uh, put in place capital controls to try to stem some of those effects. The w- earth shook on Feb- in February of this year. And that's when the IMF, and most of you are political scientists, there's all these books in political science on the IMF and its views on capital account liberalization and capital controls. The IMF comes out with a staff position note in February of 2010, where they do a whole bunch of econometric studies and review all the newer evidence since the Reinhardt, and they find that those countries that use capital controls were among the least worst off uh, in, in uh, in this current crisis. Um, and that they come out. It's now official staff position. that capital controls are justified as part of the policy toolkit on inflows. Now, this is not China's capital controls. China's capital—they they recommend them for countries with floating exchange rates and so forth. China's capital controls are more like your grandfather's or father's uh, uh, capital controls. But uh, this this study has been uh, has run like wildfire through the um, through the community. And uh, in the past eight months, um, we've seen, uh, because of the carry trade, lo- very low, zero-bound interest rates in the United States and relatively higher interest rates in developing countries, we're seeing another massive inflow of uh, capital flows to the developing world. Uh, we're seeing exchange rate appreciation. Brazil's real is about 35% uh, higher than it was in uh, 2008 and against the, and against the yuan. Um, lots of currency appreciation in the number of countries. Have put in place inflow, uh, capital controls on inflows. Uh, Thailand, South Korea, uh, Taiwan, uh, Indonesia, Colombia, Brazil, uh, Venezuela, Argentina, and a, and a handful of others are, are among the key countries that have done this. Um, so, okay, IMF has decided that this is an okay thing. Um, economics profession is okay with it. Um, political economy we'll get to we'll get to later, but. One of the big problems is that most of the trade agreements that have been set up during the period when the uh, discourse or the thinking about capital controls or the ideology about capital controls was, was very negative, many of the trade treaties out there in the world economy now outlaw these tools that now the IMF is telling you that you can use. Um, this is just a summary of, uh, of um, the World Trade Organization, United States Bilateral Investment Treaties and Free Trade agreements. And other bilateral investment treaties and free trade agreements. Okay, all treaties just about outlaw capital controls on the current account, right? Those are the Keynes 75 year ago uh, capital controls, right? No one, no one is arguing for current account capital controls. We're talking about the financial account, or the capital account, <coughs> where uh, <coughs> where you're going to. Many of these countries are putting in capital controls uh, in the WTO. Um, You cannot use capital controls unless you haven't haven't listed uh, liberalizing uh, financial services under the GATS, and there's only a handful of countries that have done that, so effectively under the WTO, you can do whatever you want. Uh, Under the IMF, you can do whatever you want. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, uh, In addition, at the WTO, uh, there are safeguard and uh, provisions which... Under a crisis, you can probably get away with it. This is a huge thing being debated in Geneva right now among the legal profession. But my reading of it is, uh, under the WTO, if you are, uh, if you have agreed to liberalize your financial account through, uh, through Mode One or the GATS, uh, in the event of a crisis, you could probably use a safeguard. Some would disagree. Uh, in the United States, this is all in red. You can't use them on the current or the capital account. And there's absolutely no uh, no exception. No exception for, for any kind of a crisis or anything like that. That stands in stark contrast with most of the, just about all of the Asian uh, bilateral investment treaties and free trade agreements, just about all the European uh, <clears throat> uh, free trade agreements, and all of the individual European bilateral investment treaties. However, you folks know better than I do that the European Union now is allowed to create its own model bilateral investment treaty, and this is a huge, huge issue. Some countries think that. Uh, there should be a balance of payments exception, like there is in the bilateral treaties that individual European countries have, and there's other constituents that uh, that want it to be more like a U.S. model. Um, let me. How much time do I have? I forgot to ask. So involved in the talk, I wasn't paying attention. Uh, you have uh, about uh, three minutes. Three minutes. Five. Okay. Well, that that's the punchline. That table summarizes it, right? Uh, in the uh, in the WTO, um, the GATS, the General Agreement on Trade and Services, is different than m- many of the other treaties, and a country has what's called a positive list approach. If Graham, um, uh, Graham can say, okay, I will liberalize my construction sector, but not my financial services sector, um, and he can be free to do that. Although in my, co- in my country, I'm going to say, I'm not ready for financial services, but I'll um, uh, I'm ready for financial services, so I'll liberalize that. So if Graham didn't liberalize financial services under the GATS, um, he can do whatever he wants. If I did, it's not clear whether or not I uh, I certainly can't unless there's a crisis. And then I think the, the legal profession would say that under the WTO, if there's a crisis, then you can go ahead and use a capital control. Um, that's the, uh, uh, here are the countries that I, that I argue are the most vulnerable to actions against capital controls under GATS. And two of them have used them, and what's really interesting, Iceland's used them and they were explicitly sanctioned and recommended by the IMF and written into the IMF, uh, structural plan for them afterwards, so you you could have a potentially real clash of regimes here, um, and Argentina, uh, has used them as well, they, they've just done that on a, on a unilateral basis, um, this is the legal safeguard, which I, I won't get into, um, in the United States, bilateral investment treaties and, and free trade agreements, <clears throat> like I said, absolutely, uh, it's an absolute standard. You cannot diminish the value of a foreign investment regardless of what it is. And, uh, um, and something like the unremunerated reserve, reserve requirement that Chile has uh, by having to park a small percentage of that investment into the central bank for a short period of time that diminishes the value of the investment. This was the, the number one political issue in the US-Chile free trade agreement. Uh, Chile, um, Chile almost did not sign the agreement because of this one measure. Um, and one, uh, the last point that I'll make is that they, they caved in on the United States. Zelec and the president went to, the United, uh, went to Chile and, and put a lot of pressure on them. They caved in, but in their negotiations with, four, with the EU and their free trade agreement, they were able to carve it out and in their negotiations with the Canadians, they were able to carve it out. And this causes a serious problem because the trading system is supposed to create uh, an environment of non-discrimination, but now you have different commitments for different things, and so by nature, capital controls are gonna be discriminatory because of these trade agreements. And especially given the fact that the United States is the one that is the outlier, you you can, you know, if you're a UK bank and say the UK, the EU free trade agreement, doesn't allow you uh, to do this, well, you can just work through your, your banks in New York and, uh, and, and have it all go through there. So uh, the good news is that the, um, that we have a more wider and legitimate toolkit for, um, uh, to deal with some of these asset bubbles and so forth, and a lot of stuff that, uh, that, that works, again, it's not a panacea, but it's a part of a toolkit. The bad news is, is that the, the um, trading system is very inconsistent across uh... across different bilateral free trade agreements and and the WTO and so forth and uh... it it could make a a mess out of the countries that are that are trying to do this stuff now Um, and it's becoming one of the big issues in in treaty negotiations the South Koreans actually just put in controls about six weeks ago I'm sorry I spent the summer in China so when I'm here I feel like uh... it's May Uh, about five months ago um, And uh, it's clear that those would be illegal under the pending agreement that the South Koreans have sitting uh, in the US Congress right now. They've approached the United States and want to change that too. And the United States, sure, as long as we can uh, renegotiate the the, uh, auto deal, um, because the big issue, the reason why it isn't moving through the US Congress is that uh, um, uh, Korea now has a comparative advantage in cars and uh, the US labor movement didn't have as much political voice in the Bush administration, has a lot more political voice in the, um, uh, in the Obama administration, and, and there's no way that he can bring tariffs on Korean cars to zero um, in, before November. That's for sure. Uh, we'll see what happens after that. I should have waited till now to ask my, how much time I had, because then I could have gotten through some of this stuff. But uh, what can you do? Uh, what's fascinating to me... Last point? Can I just make one? What's fascinating to me is that there's no political economy literature on this stuff. There is three great books that have three totally different perspectives on the ideas and discourse on uh, or the political economy of capital controls at the IMF. Uh, We've got our pal from the community college across the street, uh, Raoul Abdelal, who blames the French. He says that uh, Candesas and all these guys are because of things that happened in the, uh, in, the in the 80s, uh, when they got it to the IMF, they ran it through the staff. Uh, this guy Jeffrey Poirot, uh, Ch- Choir- he's at the Community College of London, called one school of economics. Uh, his thing is it's all the U.S. economics. Uh, we too many U.S. economists in the IMF have our uh, ideology against capital controls, and they are the reasons why. And then Ben Cohen, Jagdish Bhagwati, and Robert Wade, three guys that you wouldn't think would be uh, on the same page, they all blame the U.S. Uh, they, they're all for capital controls, interestingly, but they say that it's the Wall Street uh, Wall Street complex that the uh, political economy, the U.S. is being pushed, uh, pushes the IMF, but interestingly, there's, there's nothing that looks at the politics of why the U.S. wants to outlaw capital controls and its trade agreements. Um, I had some of that in this paper, but the U.N. said we can't talk to finance ministers about social theory, so I'm writing a book called The Clash of Globalizations that looks at a number of different finance, growth, environmental issues, and why there are major inconsistencies among regimes, and uh, I've read all these books, and I'm going to have to do some interviews to figure out what uh, what the U.S. story is.